This is the Sport Lifestyle Podcast, where the trade of sport collides with fashion and innovation. Your hosts, Mike Gugat, Neil Schwartz, and John Peters, break down news, discuss trends, and interview industry influencers. The Sport Lifestyle Podcast is on now. This is a bonus episode of the Sport Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gugat. On this episode, I speak with Boston College professor Michael Serrazio. We talk about his new book and much more. He's a super bright dude, so I think we should just get to the interview. Our guest today is Mike Serrazio. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Hey, thanks very much for having me, Mike. Well, really glad to have you on. And I'd be remiss if I didn't thank our mutual friend, uh, Clint Springer, for, uh, for, for making this happen. Yeah, great guy and definitely appreciate the connection. Awesome. Well, will you tell our listeners, we often you know, have, have guests on and, and rarely do we have uh, guests with a unique background like yours. And uh, uh, will you tell our listeners you know, about your background and how it informs what you do now at Boston College? Sure, absolutely. Um, so uh, I am currently uh, a professor at Boston College in the communication department um, and uh, took a little bit of a circuitous path uh, to get to that point. Um, I had, uh, growing up, I had, I had really loved writing and, and I, and I felt, uh, as though that was kind of the, the dream job for me. Um, you know, that lends itself toward journalism as a kind of career aspiration. And, and I think I, I harbored that for most of my younger years. Um, I had gone to, to journalism school after, um, after my undergrad and, and had gotten out and had worked as a reporter for a uh, weekly magazine down in Houston, Texas, which was great. It was a blast. It was um, super fascinating, all kinds of great stories that I got to cover from a wide range of things, from culture to sports to politics. Um, But I realized that my favorite part of the process was when I got to call up a professor somewhere and and sort of ask them about, you know, what's the cosmic meaning about these specific uh, facts on the ground that I'm reporting about. And so I realized that, you know, perhaps that was the direction that I wanted to go with, uh, with my career. And, um, and also I, I felt nervous. Uh, This was, this was back about 2005 or so. And I felt nervous about the state of the media industry, uh, and journalism and the business of, of news. Uh, I don't think I knew at that time that things were going to go, uh, as, as, difficult as they have gone with regard to industry revenues and reporter layoffs, things like that. But it just seemed like uh, possibly trying to hitch myself to uh, a, a more stable institution like a university could be could be promising. So I went back to uh, grad school, uh, did a PhD in communication uh, in Philadelphia, and um, and then got out and began working as a professor. Uh, the area of my research is, broadly speaking, uh, the media. Uh, a little bit more specifically, uh, I study the people who make media. I study the people who create and produce media content. And so that has meant different things for different projects. My first book was on the advertising industry, and it was all about uh, it was interviews with marketers, uh, uh, agency CEOs, brand managers, sort of creative professionals in advertising. And that book was all about how advertising uh, really tries not to seem like advertising uh, nowadays, uh, whether that be the rise of product placement, whether that be the rise of branded content, social media influencers. Um, that book really looks at how advertising has evolved and kind of slithered into all kinds of spaces where it, it doesn't want to look uh, like some sort of form of selling. Um, my, can, my, I, can I jump in real yeah, quick? Because I think you, just, you, you said something that is, is so uh, timely yeah. because, you know, 20 years ago, you picked up a magazine and if you're reading through something and then discovered it was advertorial, you felt violated or, you know, you'd been taken advantage of yep. and, uh, you know, integrated marketing has is, is become just you know, our, our everyday lives, you know, something is powered by or brought to you by, or, you know, for that matter, could be even produced by. Yep. 
Yeah, completely. We've gotten, and there, I think there's two sort of powerful factors that explain why we've moved in that direction. Um, on one hand, um, artists and creatives need a sponsor, right? I mean, journalists are uh, being you know, laid off a lot. There, there's uh, a lot of creative talent that used to be able to depend on um, a certain system of, you know, financing their work. And that system is is kind of breaking down in all kinds of ways. Uh, certainly, the music industry has been decimated by this, uh, but certainly journalism has as well uh, and some other creative industries. And on the other side, um, sponsors need a vessel, right? Uh, we uh, instinctively and understandably want to avoid advertising. Uh, it sucks. It's annoying. It's bothersome. It's um, And so, you know, pretty much every advance in technology that we've seen has also meant that we are able to uh, to avoid uh, commercial messages. So, at, you know, brands and corporations got to get their message across somehow, and and the people who make content need somebody to pay for it. And so, I think that's explained a lot that kind of marriage between what had previously been kept separate uh, for economic and technological reasons is now just blurring together more than ever. And 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 I think you know the the um, you know the 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 the, the way in which we are comfortable with that has also changed. You, you know, you said a second ago, uh, you know, it used to be that you would feel, you know, burned or betrayed if you came across advertorial. Generationally speaking, I don't, I don't see that same reaction uh, from my students nowadays. Um, you know, another thing I study is sort of generational identities and, you know, the the old kind of fear of selling out that was strong among, uh, you know, baby boomers to some degree, certainly it defined Generation X. With millennials and Generation Z, uh, selling out is not, it's, 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 it's not, um, it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a stigma that I think it was in previous generations. It's, it's, it's something that's, that's accepted. It's strategic. You know, everybody, God forbid, is their own brand nowadays. And so, um, the way in which advertising and commercial culture has kind of been just grafted onto all aspects of our experience and, and our existence, um, what was a big part of that, of that first book? Um, that may be a good segue into telling yeah. the listeners about your second book, because I think of stigma and I think of uh, how timely your second book is. But why don't you uh, set up the power of sports, media, and the spectacle in American culture? Because I think, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly crossing over to, you know, more than just sport. Absolutely. And that precisely was, was the goal with this book. I kind of had two goals uh, with, with this book, which, which came out this spring. One was I wanted to tell the story of America through sports. I wanted to to really tell a story how you can look at you can look at our sports culture, and you can see something that's far more profound and revealing than just whatever happens on the field or whatever happens in a, in a given game. Really, the the book is about how sports explains America and how sports explains all kinds of different facets of American life, whether that be religious ritual, whether that be uh, our politics, whether that be the changing aspects of gender in American society, uh, whether that be media, uh, technological and commercial change. Um, you can look at sports culture and you can see all of these things that are much bigger than the game uh, and are really revealing. So that was one thing I wanted to do with the book. And then the second thing I wanted to do with the book was um, you know, it, it's very much a study of the production of sports culture and sports media. So the book is based upon about 60 hours of interviews that I did with, uh, again, the, the people who make this spectacle, uh, uh, folks at ESPN, folks at Sports Illustrated, folks at, uh, you know, the sports pages of a number of daily papers around the country, folks at Deadspin, uh, folks on the business side. So everyone from, you know, David Stern, former NBA commissioner, uh, to leadership at Adidas and Pepsi and, and various other brands that have, uh, have a stake in the sports game. And, and really with, with, with these interviews, what I wanted to know is, you know, how is, how is this sports spectacle made? How is it, uh, created for audiences? What are the assumptions? What, 
what is changing about how sports is represented for audiences. And uh, so I, I was had the good fortune uh, to be able to get some access. Uh, you know, I, like I said, I, I did about 60 interviews with about uh, 50 or so folks. Um, there's a lot of, <laughs> there was a lot of rejection as well. I mean, all of my work involves a lot of rejection, which is to say that, uh, you know, for every interview I get, I've gotten, you know, three or four uh, ignored uh, requests or just outright, you know, uh, rejections. So, you know, um, I'm only as, uh, you know, my work is only as good as, a, as, as I'm able to get the kindness of the professionals who I speak with to give me their time. Um, but yeah, it was a really fun project to be able to, 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 to research for a couple of years and to write up. And, and, uh, you know, I think, I think it, the, hopefully the book does two things. One, it tells the story of America and two, it tells how sports media is really created for us. I'm, I'm sure it does. And I have not had a chance to read it, but where should I go get it or where can I get it? Probably easiest place is Amazon. Uh, it seems like all roads lead back to Amazon nowadays uh, for, for better and worse. Uh, yeah, that's that's I mean, it's it was published by New York University Press and it's available on Amazon or, you know, Barnes and Noble, some of the other online websites, things like that. So again, the book is titled The Power of Sports, Media and the Spectacle in American Culture. So I, I certainly recommend everybody check that out. But that that kind of leads to, you know, as we talk about the production of this media and then how that media fuels, you know, how these leagues and organizations and, and uh, you know, the, the whole experience is, is curated. I'm just curious. Uh, there's, there seems to be, you know, kind of a push and a pull. You have something like Undefeated, which is, you know, in the business of just, you know, reporting the sports news as quickly as possible and, and, and may not be as detailed or as, as accurate. And then you have, you know, a venture like uh, The Athletic that is, you know, presenting a long form um, uh, opportunity and, 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 you know, for subscribers. Any any insights or takeaways there as to you know where things may settle? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, boy, I wish I, I wish I had I wish I had the answer to where things may settle out. We're at a, such an uncertain moment uh, in media history. I'm mean, just such a transformative moment, uh, not just of sports, but but kind of of all content and how it's distributed, how it's consumed. Um, I think we, you know you know you mentioned the athletic there. That's that's a really interesting project and you know what what makes it interesting is obviously the sort of subscriber based nature of that business model because um you know for 10 15 years now really since since a lot of the uh daily papers have have come online there have been you know lots of questions and lots of experiments to figure out how are you going to get people to pay for news uh and Sports, let, let me actually back up a second. For the news business, sports, there's no more important beat. There is no more important topic. I mean, historically, throughout uh, American media history, sports has been the driver that has financed uh, journalism, broadly speaking. Uh, you can go back to when you know, sports pages were first starting to appear in, in the newspapers in the 1920s, and you had substantial uh, numbers of folks who were buying the newspaper just to get the sports section. Wasn't there a crazy uh, quote from uh, uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren that I always start with a sports page because it highlights man's triumphs, and then I read the front page because it you know, you know, delineates his failures or whatever? It is indeed. It is indeed the case. I actually use that quote in the book, and I point out that uh, Chief Justice Warren was not a San Diego fan, apparently, because uh, if you have a quote like that, you clearly haven't been, you know, grown up uh, rooting for the and reading about the Chargers and the Padres, uh, because there's nothing but man mankind's failures there as a uh, as a fan of those two teams. But I digress. Um, so so what you have with the Athletic is really interesting. Um, you know. It seems like it's so successful so far. Uh, it seems like there's a market for that. One interesting possibility, though, and I will give credit uh, to uh, another scholar um, who uh, whose name escapes me now, but I happen to see his work um, this summer at a conference. You know, the the argument that came up uh, from him is that what if the athletic destroys all of newspapers in America? Because because if if you're I'm in Boston here. Uh, if if I'm a Boston sports fan, and I uh, am a diehard fan, and I really want to know what's going on with the local teams, 
you know, before The Athletic came along, I had to get that content mostly through the Boston Globe. It was the largest kind of institution in the in the city that could that could could get that content to me. And then by me paying for the whole paper, I'm subsidizing the investigative work that the Globe does. I'm subsidizing their coverage of City Hall. More or less like me getting my sports fix is the thing that that maintains the paper's primacy and, and centrality in the city, broadly speaking. If all of a sudden I can get that content from The Athletic and I give up my Boston Globe subscription, uh, we're kind of screwed. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, uh, there, there's a way in which the athletic success, good as it may be for sports fans and good as it may be for sports coverage, winds up creating a crisis of, 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 of coverage and of democratic accountability for other um, – you know, newspapers around the country because because maybe they go out of business because all the people were just subscribing because they needed the sports page fix every morning. So, uh, so that's that's you know the the sort of interesting angle that I've I've come across so far with some of the analysis of the athletic, uh, particularly as they seem really bent on you know very much cannibalizing sports pages across the country. Well, and they've clearly gone out and hired some of the best talent, or you know yep. the the you know that that have done that, and and there there always seems to be that you know often these great writers that uh, always wanted to write for the you know the front page you know above the fold end up you know in the sports you know, section and, you know, and then found mentors and, you know, grew up in that business. But does this really come back to like media literacy? It does. I mean, yeah, like, so, so if you, uh, if all you have is a, a, a hammer everywhere you look, it's a nail, that, that same thing applies to media studies professors. Um, it does definitely come back to media literacy and the way in which, um, you know, uh, uh, we're, we're aware of, how the systems of information work on us as a society, how they work on our politics, how they work on our culture. Um, you know, I'll add that, you know, sports, the, the, the reason why sports has survived so well at a time of tremendous upheaval when it comes to the media industry otherwise is, is quite simple and, and obvious, but it's, it's quite profound as well. We got to get sports live. Right. There's th- this is now now we're talking a little bit more about sort of uh, sort of the televised video kind of experience of sports as opposed to kind of the written newspaper form. But um, sports tells us what time it is. Uh, and there's very few other things in American culture right now that do that. You know, you can you can you know you can DVR and and record whatever your favorite show is. You can stream tons of content through Netflix. Um, you know, we're, we're really capable of consuming content whenever we want to. And sports, it's not like that. You got to get it when it's happening. You got to get it when it's live. And that has that entirely explains the economic power of sports. Uh, domestically, this year I think they're expecting it's going to trip past seventy billion in the U.S. Globally, I've heard estimates anywhere from two hundred to seven hundred billion, depending on you know how you how you count that. And to me, for me, the the thing that explains that economic growth is entirely based upon the fact that we need sports live. And so as long as sports has that power uh, culturally, it will have uh, that value economically. And so, you know, now how does it get delivered to us? What happens with TV rights? What happens with digital streaming? Perhaps you have one of the Silicon Valley's companies jump in the next uh, next round of rights bids and they're going to be the distribution platform for it. That's all, I mean, you asked me earlier, what's the future? If I had, if I knew, I'd be, I'd be, um, you know, I'd be like uh, Marty McFly in Back to the Future 2 with the uh, sports almanac. But I, I, I just don't. I mean, I, I couldn't begin to hazard a guess. I do think that if my students are any indication, there is a, there is going to be a real challenge for sports leagues to continue to deliver content to young audiences, sports content to deliver that content to young audiences in the way that they have to older generations of audiences. I don't think, I don't think platform or format will still work the way it always has. Well, so that, that harkens the question then, you know, and again, I'll date myself, but, you know, growing up as a, as a kid in the 1980s and, you know, the game of the week was on Sunday and, and, you know, the, 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 the rights to be able to broadcast that game of the week, if it were Lakers and Celtics or, you know, whatever it, it happened to be, there was a whole week of hype and lead up to it. 
in a shared experience and no longer do we have the shared experience. I guess, you know, I'm curious about, because I think that this is, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about on this podcast and the business of sport is you have brands like Adidas, a brand I worked for that, you know, their top paid assets are non-athletes. It's Kanye yeah. West, it's Beyonce and it's uh, Pharrell from what I understand, you know, so it, it comes down to how, how does the business in this new media figure out a way to hype the actual action because you know if it's not butts and seats it's somebody looking at their phone um it, it, it and i think you know one of the things i do want to talk to you about you know a little bit in a bit is is sports betting and and we can talk about it right now but what what do you sort of see now as the uh the economic forces that uh you know are, are really starting to, to pull it in a new direction yeah, it's a great question. It's a profound question. It's one that, you know, we could talk for 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 hours about and I, I don't know what we would really come to a conclusion about. I mean, I think one thing that jumps to mind, um, and and I'll maybe you know, you you asked a very broad question. Let me let me just sort of jump in with a very specific example, particularly to um to Adidas. When when I was working on the book and I was interviewing um a representative at Adidas there, um they you know, they had they we were talking about some of these challenges and and they brought up one example to me, which was uh, a poor uh, uh, um, star. I don't know, I'm trying to think of the right word here, but uh, b- bad luck fallen uh, Derek Rose had one of his comebacks that uh, he was he was trying to pull off. I, I can't remember which one because, you know, as I say, poor guy just, yes, just no, had man. the absolute worst injury luck uh, in memory. But anyway, he was he was he was trying to work on his comeback, and he wanted to do a sort of like. Um, kind of like a sort of hard knock style docu series about that experience, and um, you know, his people I think reached out to some of the more traditional providers of of that type of content, ESPN, Fox, etc. And ultimately, he just wound up going with Adidas um, for for the distribution of that content, and and what the <clears throat> what the what the um, the 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 VP at Adidas who I had interviewed uh, told me was you know it really it doesn't matter whether it's going to be traditional TV delivery of the content like you mentioned when you were a kid growing up game of the week uh, or it's something more flexible and adaptable in some sort of digital format you know Adidas is going to go and every brand is going to go to wherever the eyeballs are and they'll bring their money with them. So I think what you see is in that Derrick Rose example um, is the fact that you know athletes are I'm not going to say they're waking up to it they've they've definitely woken up to the fact that not only are they all brands I mean they've known that fact since you know Air Jordan in the 1990s not only are they not only all are they all brands they're all media companies right and and it was just two or three weeks ago the cover of Sports Business Journal had a great issue about. Um, just how many of these examples there are of athletes who have conceptualized themselves as media entities and are doing, um, you know, production, you know, of original content. Sometimes not even having to do with sports per se, but really, you know, seeing themselves as kind of, you know, entertainment media mogul types. And that's the direction that I think it's going to go in because, you know. The internet did many things, but one of the most simple things it did was simply flatten the routes to distribution and the capacity for, um, you know, the capacity for uh, uh, an, an athlete to be able to simply broadcast their content to as wide an audience as they desire uh, with the help of an of a brand, with the help of an Adidas. Um, I think that is the future because um, they can do so with the same power and ability that ESPN or the athletic can. Uh, and they've got the, and they've got the ability to pull that off. And you don't have the filter of the traditional media. I mean, I think you, exactly. you look at the players tribune, you look at, uh, you know, young guys that oftentimes aren't well media trained and then get, you know, in their, you know, perception misrepresented. So uh, it could be really interesting. Hey, let's, uh, let's kind of switch gears and, you know, it's almost Labor Day and which means football is, is upon us and some very recent news over the weekend of, uh, you know, a star player, Andrew Luck announcing his retirement. And I was curious to get your take on what does it say about our culture when someone like that makes such a mature decision gets booed? 
Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, so yeah, Saturday night, uh, I, I was, um, I was watching the, the, uh, Chargers preseason game and I, and I saw it come across the ticker and I, and I, and I, you know, I, I was literally, I mean, I fell out of my seat, but I was, I was shocked. I think as everybody was, um, so what you have there with the Andrew Luck story, I think I think you have two interesting things happening. One, in that kind of moment, you had the kind of fan reaction, which was um, which was kind of knee jerk. Um, but what I think what I think the Andrew Luck retirement tells us is actually, in many ways, in many ways, it's symbolic for a larger um, pattern or a larger kind of cultural trend uh, that we're seeing, which is how we feel about as fans, as media members, as a society, how we feel about um, brutal violence against men's bodies. Um, and, and, and I'll sort of segue off of your question into one of the arguments that I, I make in the book, which is that historically, we have tended to look at athletes getting beaten up on the field as something that is admirable as something that is manly as something that is uh that is valorized we 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 took joy in that and uh you can think of this with the segments that espn used to run not that long ago the jacked up highlight segments um you know there there was a degree to which we reveled as fans and as the media in that portrayal of uh of of violence and of of um uh, concussions and things like that what you've seen, I think, in the last five or ten years has been a slight change in in how we regard, uh, you know, a- athletes in this way. Uh, I heard this when I was interviewing all kinds of sports journalists. I heard from a number of sports journalists who cover football who said, "I feel differently about the game than I used to." Uh, and, and and the concussion thing is at the you know the CTE crisis is at the the forefront of that. But but. But many, many interviewees told me uh, that they feel like they're making blood money, right? They're making their money off of a sport that is, uh, that is in some ways, ethically unreconcilable. Uh, and a lot of them, and a couple of them said, you know, I actually wonder whether I should even be covering this sport, but it's not a good idea to give up the best beat in sports media, the most lucrative beat in sports media. And so... With the with the with the luck uh, retirement, I was um, surprised, but well, not surprised. I mean, I think it sort of confirms what we're seeing here. The degree to which um, there was actually, it seemed like a fair amount of understanding from players, from the media, about him not wanting to uh, to, to you know to, to go back into battle. And I, I think that's I think that's revealing. I think that's I think that's a way in which um, you know the the the, the, the NFL has to be worried about um, the way the culture is changing and, and the culture is changing in how it views the, the violence and the destruction of, of, of players' bodies. It's interesting because I had read something earlier today that like if it's really going to send a, uh, a wake-up call, you know, we get into a whole other discussion on guns in this country or mass shootings and, you know, what yeah. little ends up happening. But it's going to take 12, you know, uh, uh, Andrew Luck retirements at one time Yeah, you know, yeah. to actually have a, an impact. You have had, though, uh, and the statistic uh, is out of my hand right now, but you have had an increase in the number of uh, a considerable increase in the number of uh, NFL players uh, under the age of 30 who voluntarily retired uh, early. Um, some some big names, you know, Calvin Johnson, uh, Marshawn Lynch for a brief period of time, uh, and now Luck. Um, yeah, I think you're. I, I I think you're right that um, that you know it's going to take. I mean, Luck was the biggest name guy, right? I mean, I think. Um, you know, before him, probably the biggest shakeup of this sort would have probably been um, uh, um, Chris Borland. I want to say, is that his mm-hmm. name? San Francisco Forty yeah. Nine er. Is yep, that yep, is that right? Yep. I'm pretty sure yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he was he was uh, five years ago or whenever he whenever he stepped away, he was in many ways the um, the face of that. Um, you know, um, the the NFL. It's 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 got challenges going forward. It's got it's got. Um, it's got challenges of these retirements. It's got challenges of youth participation, right? Um, you know, there's a way in which this huge money-making machine, uh, you know, which is somewhere I know that I know that Goodell wants 
by like mid decade to get to like 25 billion. I think it's somewhere around 14 or so now. Uh, you know, they have big ambitions, um, but you know, there's there's big challenges ahead as well uh, for the NFL for 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 cultural reasons. I think which will impact the economic bottom line. Well, let's uh, let's uh, uh, touch one of those uh, cultural uh, uh, news items that came up recently. Uh, the NFL's new partnership with uh, uh, Jay Z's company, Rock Nation. Yeah, yeah. Um, fascinating story. Uh, certainly, from my money, the um, Colin Kaepernick uh, inspired protest movement was the most important non-sports story to hit sports uh, in a generation. Uh, I mean, I, I really think um, the story of Kaepernick and um, his his efforts to uh, further the Black Lives Matter movement and his subsequent uh, blacklisting from the NFL, the back and forth with Trump, the widespread protests, uh, I mean, we're only two seasons removed from that, but it's going to continue to be felt in in all these ways. Um, you know what? Here, here's my take specific to uh, to the the um, Rock Nation partnership. Um, the NFL and and surely all other leagues have to look with tremendous envy at the NBA for the NBA's place, not just in the sports spectacle, but in American culture broadly. Um, you know, le- leagues wax and wane, they go up and they go down. Um, the NBA was was not in a great place, uh, say 15 years ago, uh, sort of post, post-Jordan and post some of the that generation of um, superstars. Um, but right now, the NBA is just about as central to American culture as any institution. And I can think I, with can, the, I, can I, can I ask yeah. something as it relates yeah. to that? Because I think that you know a lot of the conversation that uh, I hear and then what I end up reading is you know the NBA is has been progressive and how they even refer to the franchises is not necessarily being owners, but you know franchises yeah. they're, they're really making you know this effort. And I guess that then you know always has me coming back to this question: Is the NFL fan base really that different? Well. That's a great question. Um, yes and no. Uh, I don't think it's 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 that different, um, you know, broadly. Uh, although it is slightly, and I'll and I'll and I'll give you a specific example of this. Um, I did a national survey with a colleague in political science. Uh, we tried to look at the relationship between sports fandom and political attitudes. We found some interesting things. Uh, side note, we found that the more of a sports fan you are, the more comfortable you are with economic inequality. Uh, the more of a sports fan you are, the more hawkish your attitudes tend to be when it comes to military affairs abroad. But specific to your question, we were curious if there was any political valence of any fan base of the major four uh, U.S. leagues. And we found there wasn't, except that the NBA fan base did lean left uh, more so than um, than the other four, three leagues that we examined. Um, now, can, is that a product of other demographic factors, uh, the racial makeup of the fan base? Uh, NBA tends to be uh, a more pop, more popular in urban areas. Sure. I mean, there's there's definitely correlational factors there. But there is something different about, um, about the NBA fans, and there is something different about how the NBA ownership in the league regards players and its position in the league. You know, the NFL owners really think of themselves as sort of like um, – I mean, I hope I'm not casting aspersions here, but like, kind of like, you know, sort of gods, right? I mean, they kind of, it, there's a whole culture of sort of authoritarian, there's an ethos of that in the NFL where it's like, um, you know, next man up, right? You follow, you follow, you know, uh, uh, you know, who the new sheriff in town is, right? John Gruden shows up, Bill Belichick shows up, Bill Parcells shows up and he's going to kick some butt and get the troops into line. You don't have that same vibe in the NBA. Like, you don't have the coach coming in as like the new sheriff in town who's going to, you know, who's going to, uh, you know, whip, uh, you know, uh, LeBron and Dwayne Wade into shape and get them to play together best. Like it's it's clearly it's a player's league. And that has 
redounded to the benefit of the marketability of the league. Um, you know, you know, you know the players in the NBA much better than the players in the NFL, uh, and certainly much better than the players in, in Major League Baseball. They're just they're just better at marketing. Um, some of that is the luck of literally sartorial luck, which is to say that like if you're playing in your if you're playing with your face exposed you're going to be more attached to that athlete as a fan. And the anonymity of the helmet means that you're going to be less attached to the players in the NFL. Um, but some of it is also the way in which the NBA is a players-run league and the NFL is, a, is 30 owners who, who, think, of, who think of their uh, employees as interchangeable labor. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a key distinction there in terms, of, in terms of how the two leagues have shaped up. So I guess I'm a Greg Popovich progressive and, uh, and, and <laughs> not, not a Belichick, uh, general or, uh, or I guess he had Navy background, but, um, yeah. but, uh, uh, as a, as a side note, uh, you know, now that Jay-Z has a seat at the, uh, the table, I, I hope he considers, you know, bringing, uh, Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed under, uh, you know, his, uh, his organization, and then they might really be able to mix it up. Hey, you contributed to my, uh, my local paper here, the Washington post a while back on Colin Kaepernick and Nike. And I definitely agree with the premise you had. And, um, you know, that, you know, again, at the end of the day, Nike's, you know, trying to sell shoes. I do think one outcome, you know, with the campaign they did with Colin Kaepernick, that seemed like it could have given cover to a team um, was the fact that the the reaction of consumers was quite positive. They saw incredible, uh, uh, you know, business, uh, you know, immediately afterwards. Um, do you think he has a chance of coming back? No, I, I mean, I... I, I hope I'm wrong, uh, because I think that history will look, um, I think that history will look kindly on uh, on uh, the the uh, uh, the message of racial equality that that he has tried to put forth, and will I think history will look unkindly on the NFL ownership's treatment of him. Um, but I I I think that boy, you know, the NFL, it's just you have like, you have like a short, short window, you know, I mean, it's really, it's really, the clock is ticking. And, um, you know, with each passing year, uh, it, it, it just seems like it's, it's harder and harder to, uh, to imagine, uh, physically, you know, that he, he would, he would be able to, to reenter the league, leaving aside the, um, the sort of political and sort of controversial aspects of, um, of his, uh, of his, um, his movement. I, I mean, you know, I think what Nike did with Kaepernick was, was smart. Um, you know, Nike, uh, w wants to capture, uh, that, uh, demographic, uh, and aligning, aligning themselves with Kaepernick and, and with, um, his cause, uh, as we saw, seemed to sh sell more shoes than were burned out in you know front of you know somebody's front lawn on YouTube videos, right? Um, uh, I think that the the one thing that I I thought was interesting about the Nike ad a year ago, I guess it was, um, was that um, you know ultimately uh, Nike just wants to sell shoes. <laughs> um, ultimately, uh, you know, a brand ca cannot have politics. It's just a brand. It's just shoes. I mean, that's one of the great collective delusions that we uh, accept is that is that brands have have can have identities, and and I, and I know they do, and I know they can, but but as a sort of you know critic, uh, you know sort of a um, you know someone on the sidelines who sort of observes this, I just have to remind people that like you know, human beings have identities. A corporation, a brand is not a human being, despite brands wanting to be human beings, because that's how they'll sell to us better. So, uh, you know, as a kind of cranky, cranky uh, uh, professor type, I, I, I always feel like I have to remind us that like, Nike's not a person. It wants to be a person, but it's not. Yeah. One Mitt Romney may disagree with you, but we can save that for another another <laughs> totally, conversation. Totally. But I do think that gets totally. down to the, you know, again, if you're a publicly traded company as one of those brands, your fiduciary responsibility, 
you know, is, is about your shareholder and it makes it difficult to, you know, uh, sometimes take these stances. It's been proven that if you do take them, the way the next generation of consumers is moving, uh, their, their barrier to switch is influenced by that point of view or that willingness to take that stance. It's just a can matter I, of being able to bring others take, there. I'm sorry. Can I ask you your take? Can I ask you your take on that? Which is to say that you we have seen uh, an explosion in the last five years of brands that are willing to take political stands. As someone who who came from you know that professional expertise. What's what's your take on that? Is that a good play for brands, or do brands should brands still want to sell to, to Republicans and Democrats alike? No, I, I think that that's the political part of it, right? So if you're right. taking a stand on an issue that is going to be politicized, that doesn't necessarily mean you're you know you're you have an allegiance to one side of the argument or not. And I do think that yeah. Nike has been able to capitalize on being on the right side of history. And, and again, as a marketer, you're always looking at demographics. And so if the shifting demographics suggest that diversity is going to be important to your marketing strategy, you're going to build a strategy that then is inclusive, you know, uh, to others. So then, you know, the Michael Jordan quote of, you know, Republicans wear my shoes too, no longer you know, uh, stance. And I think if we want to talk about branding, you're going to get me on a soapbox, but you know, <laughs> you have two political parties. I'm right here in Washington that, sure. you know, the, the shine has come off those political brands. If the Republican party, you know, now is, is Trump's Republican party and Trump was a lifelong Howard Stern Democrat and was able to beat lifelong Republicans, you know, and Hillary, a lifelong Democrat with the influence of, you know, her husband having been in the White House nearly loses to, you know, a Democratic socialist who is never, you know, outside of caucusing with Democrats is never necessarily affiliated and is, is you know, scrutinized the Democratic Party. I, to me, that's an, ultimately an indictment on both brands, you know, not yeah. having the influence maybe they once had. I agree. I agree. Hey, you're a good host. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I said anything meaningful, but uh, hey, let, let's uh, let's shift gears because as we were talking about equality, it, it you know it brings me to uh, you know what's what's happening um, in women's sports. And if you look at the yeah. highest paid athletes, and I could have this wrong, so please correct me. But most are either in tennis or you know golf sports that millennials don't seem to be um, you know that interested in. And I guess how how could you know, because communications drives a lot of this, the, the media drives a lot of this, you know, how can sports like women's soccer and basketball and softball potentially be better monetized? Oh, yeah, boy. Yeah, this is such an important uh, uh, question. And, 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 and for me as a fan, uh, one that that personally, I, I wish could be resolved in some ways, I'll, I'll say that, um, you know, the uh, this summer, Four years ago, uh, the, the the women's World Cup was some of the most uh, exciting and 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 wonderful uh, sports programming that I, I feel like I've watched uh, all decade long, um, and and I and I wish that um, I wish that it could find uh, a, a means of of monetizing to uh, catapult it to to, to greater heights. Um, there's this there's this problem with uh, the sports media and women's sports, and it's a kind of circular problem. Um, I for, for the book, one of the chapters is about is about sports and gender. And when I was interviewing all these sports executives, uh, one of the questions I asked was, "Why don't you cover more of women's sports?" Uh, you know, I mean, the the statistics show that at roughly two to two to three percent of sports coverage is 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 given over to female athletes and female sports um and the answer that i got was well there's not the interest and you know the i, I you know the, the the problem with it with the problem with that is there's not going to be the interest if it's not promoted in the same way that men's sports are i think that you know i i think that particularly with women's soccer i think that that's got the best chance for a couple of reasons um one uh, soccer in the U.S., uh, even though it's definitely growing in popularity, uh, it's not it's not in the big three. Uh, and so, for for sort of reasons of, for lack of a better word, sexism, um, fans do not have a gendered association. Fans in the U.S. do not have a gendered association with soccer being male in the same way that they do for baseball and basketball and football, if there was ever a sort of female football league equivalent. So 
with soccer, you have you have less of that barrier in terms of sort of just sort of sexist fan inclinations, and you also have um, you also have a, a tremendously popular uh, um, national team that you could that you could grow off of. Um, it's it's tricky finding it's tricky finding footholds. It's been a slow slow path to growth for MLS, and I don't know you know that there's any overnight solution or success uh, uh, path that that we can you know point to for for women's sports or for uh, women's soccer in particular. It's going to take it's going to take the media pushing the content on to audiences a little bit more than the ratings might dictate at a given moment. Um, because if you do promote and push the content, I think you'll find that the, the, the fandom will turn up for it. Um, and I think that, again, the evidence for that has been the, the last two World Cups and the, the tremendous rating successes that they've had. I wish there was, I, I wish there was a, a silver bullet um, I think it's a slow process. I think it's a hopeful one, um, you know. And I and I think that it's just with each year and with each new season, you hope that it pushes forward a little bit more and more. Well, that kind of then uh, segues into uh, you know with the recent scandals at USA Gymnastics, and and we we think of the Olympics, and oftentimes, you know that that young you know female athlete, that girl is seeing someone do something, and that inspires them to want to go out and 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 try that. Between the scandals, the NGBs, you know, seem to be um, uh, you know on shaky footing. You know, do, do the Olympics, you know present an opportunity if they can get things sorted out for young girls? They do. Um, but just being realistic um, and sort of honest about the nature of Olympic sports, um, you know, they, 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 they come around once every four years. Uh, you know, um, they, they do well for those couple of weeks, but those are not the marketable sports that um, you know, that we have season in and season out. And, and, um, and so the, you know, for participation, absolutely. Like seeing those role models, you know, in gymnastics, in some of the other Olympic sports that are perhaps less marketed, uh, those are great. Those are great ways to, uh, to encourage participation, but, you know, the, the nature of the Olympics is that it's, it's kind of a, for a lot of those sports, it's kind of a comet that sort of, blasts through every four years and it doesn't have that sustained attention that something like the WNBA, something like National Women's Soccer League, uh, you know, might be able to keep at the forefront of our attention. So I'm hopeful that that will produce some success, but uh, I'm also realistic about just where those sports sit in the kind of pantheon of sports spectacle and attention and sort of money devoted to and money derived from them. So speaking of sustaining um, attention, you know, with the legalization, or I should say the Supreme Court ruling that uh, sports betting will be left to the states, um, you know, the sports Sports betting has been a way to keep at least the degenerates engaged with, uh, no, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, with, uh, with sports, what sports do you see as being most vulnerable to corruption? I mean, it's, it, it seems like, it seems like football, uh, is, is going to be the most vulnerable. Uh, I say that, um, because, uh, it's something that already has, uh, just a ton of money in it. It's something where, uh, you know, the nature of it being, you know, just once a week and, and, and the games being analyzed and overanalyzed, uh, lends itself toward, you know, uh, uh, financial prognostication from fans. Uh, it seems as though the NFL and Hey, you got the, you got the Raiders moving to Vegas. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, you know the, the 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 Raiders as a franchise have always been um, have always kind of encouraged that outlaw identity, uh, and you know again I'm a Chargers fan so you, you can take that with a grain of salt. Um, but so, uh, well, you, but you, yeah, you I and think... I share California, but uh, I, I remain an Oakland A's fan. But if YouTube had existed in the early '80s when the Raiders first moved to Los Angeles, I would have been that 
crying kid that went viral. So uh, I, I never forgave them. And now I've suffered with uh, the, the Washington football team we have here. Uh, yeah, that's tough. That's tough. Um, yeah. So do you think they'll, I mean, do you think, uh, I, to me, the, I think Raider fans will, st- I think a lot of them will stick it out. I don't, I don't know the Oakland culture in the area that well to know whether this second betrayal, uh, but, but do you think the Raiders will, will, um, keep some of their fans even as they move to Vegas next year? I do, because if you look at the changing demographics of the Bay Area and just the uh, sheer uh, increase in cost of living, I I think many Californians that have been Raiders fans have probably been forced to move to places like uh, uh, Nevada. Hey, before I get you out, I want to remind our listeners, you know, our guest has been Mike Serrazio, the author of the book, The Power of Sports, Media and the Spectacle in American Culture. And uh, I couldn't let you go without asking what your go-to sneaker oh gosh oh what a great question i'm totally i and and um this is something that uh that i'm i'm uh i'm i'm i've got a weakness for i i i, I won't put myself as you know uh being the amalda marcos of sneaker uh, consumers but i definitely have a a weakness for them um gosh you know if you if you if you push me on it uh probably the adidas superstar shell toes um uh i had a, i first got a pair when i was in like, like my late teens and uh the cleanliness of the design uh the playfulness of some of the um the colors of the, the stripes and, and the um the back part of the shoe yeah i think i think i'm gonna say the the adidas superstar shell toes would be my choice most young listeners want to know who melda marcos was but you definitely have sneaker cred <laughs> for having uh having chosen the superstar mike thanks so much thank you so much mike it's been a great conversation hugely appreciate it look forward to continuing to listen to the podcast Absolutely. great luck with the book thanks very much thank our guest, Michael Serrazio, our sound engineer, Tyrone Lipman. This podcast would not be possible if not for our partnership with the Washington, D.C. office of cable TV, film, music, and entertainment. Our mayor, Muriel Bowser, our friends at 202 Creates. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you can find a podcast and be sure to rate us. Until next time, play hard or at least look good doing it.